Today's guest is Dr. Michael Vogel, a very dear friend of mine and a very talented mental health professional. He's a therapist in private practice, and he is co-owner called the Janus Counseling Center. Now, I invited Michael on the show because in the past, I've been a little bit negative about certain therapy practices and people that, that I don't respect in, in, in the way that they practice. But the, this series is going to be on people in the mental health field that I admire and respect a great deal. And I wanted to start with Michael because he's one of my favorite people and also an incredibly talented and gifted therapist. I hope you enjoy my interview with Michael. He's a very fascinating guy. He comes to uh, the field of psychology from a really unusual background. So again, hope you enjoy the show. There are two basic motivating forces fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now, Dr. Dana Saperstein. Well, today I'd like to welcome my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Vogel. Uh, Michael uh, and I have known each other for a long time and have a lot of mutual respect, and I was really excited when I asked him to come, and he agreed to uh, uh, share his philosophy and his life and who he is. So I, I, first question, Michael, is who's Michael Vogel? Oh, Michael Vogel. That's a good question. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when I figure that one out. <laughs> but no, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, again, the feeling is mutual. And um, I, uh, who is Michael Vogel? Well, I guess I'm a, a lot of different things. I'm probably a, a dichotomy of personalities when it comes to the things I've done and, and what I like to do. I think um, the biggest thing is that I'm just open to new experiences. And, and so I'm always out there trying new things and trying to learn new things. So I kind of had a varied career in life. So, um, yeah, being a, a naval aviator, um, if you want me to start there, was uh, definitely not part of my um, thought pattern when it, when it turns out going into careers in, in uh, life. I think originally was going to school to become a psychiatrist. Really? Um, yeah. Was doing pre-med and going to go to uh, either Tulane or Cornell, one of the two. And um, I was um, one day just walking down the, the hallway in the science building at uh, Cal State Long Beach. And the recruiter came up. And when I was looking at, actually at a Navy recruiting poster, it was a, you know, come fly jets for the Navy or fly Navy poster. And he said, well, we're doing this thing down in San Diego on Saturday. You want to go? And I said, sure. Where do I have to be? And wow. So I rode in a van down to San Diego to Miramar and flew the this flight simulator down there, the, uh, um, the F-14 simulator and uh, got hooked and decided instead of going to medical school, um, because I thought that would be a long career path that I would go fly jets for the Navy for a few years and have, you know, have some fun. 
and um, ended up spending close to 15 years in the military, discharged um, in May of 2000. So, wow. yeah. So d- tell us a bit about what you did in the military and, uh, um, and you know, what it was like for you. Yeah. Well, I did, I st- started off as being a surface warfare officer. So I, I went in in a program that was supposed to be two years active duty and then six years reserve. And that was to drive ships. So I, I was actually initially inducted in the military. I didn't get into aviation because I stupidly opened my mouth to my recruiter and said, well, if I can't get um, jets I'll, or go pilot, I'll, I'll go surface warfare, uh, okay. which is being a ship driver. Uh-huh. And um, sure enough, guess where I ended up? <laughs> got, got the denial letter for aviation and I ended up in a program for two years active duty and um, went through surface warfare training, got designated as a surface warfare officer. So I was qualified to drive a ship. And towards the end of that period of time, I uh, lateraled over to aviation. And at the end of the two years, I ended up going to Pensacola and started off on an aviation career. So I actually ended up with two warfare specialties coming out of the military. Wow. Um, which is fairly unusual. So, um, I ended up going to Pensacola and then on to Corpus Christi doing my primary flight training and then to Kingsville, Texas to do intermediate jets and advanced jet training. Um, got my wings in 1990. Wow. What was that like for you, Michael? I mean, in terms of, I mean, that, those are fairly powerful machines. They're not, it's not a run of the mill uh, occupation. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I, when I was a kid, I was always interested in aviation. Um, living in Long Beach, I would see the, the Blue Angels fly every summer. And I always thought that would be really cool. Um, of course, it was the period of the lateral part of the Vietnam War. Right. And growing up as a young kid, in that period of time, there was a lot of um, pushback from my family about not going into the military. Yeah, um, it was very much of an anti-war uh, time in life, unless you were a very conservative sort of political person. Right. Yeah. And then growing up in the in the yuppie era, right? Um, I certainly probably had a little more of middle of the road kind of political views at the time, um, and then ended up. Uh, going into the military and flying these jets only because I thought it was just interesting to, to fly. I love, I wanted to try and fly when I was 16, but couldn't uh, afford it. So oh. going to school and trying to work a part-time job, I, was, I wasn't able to afford the lessons. So um, there was an interest there in the beginning. But, you know, like I said, I've got a lot of varied interests in life. Nothing seems to really hold my attention for a long period of time, except for this particular career. So, so Michael, I've read a, uh, I've read a book a while ago about what it takes to become a naval uh, pilot on these um, mm-hmm. jets. It's no small feat. I mean, they spend a fortune training you, and uh, from what I understand, the training is quite intense. Was yeah. that was that your experience? Yeah, it's it starts off fairly, you know, slow uh-huh. initially. You certainly go through all of the. Oh, emergency training when you're down in Pensacola, um, you do these, you know, a lot of physical exercise getting you prepared to be able to 
to do it physically. Right. And then um, there's certainly a lot of testing, you know, in terms of, you know, you do a lot of, you know, hand-to-hand fighting and boxing and, and the uh, obstacle courses and those kinds of things that really kind of weed out the people that can't make it physically. Oh, okay. Um, but having been in the military for two years prior to that, I was already fairly physically fit. Oh, okay. So yeah. that was relatively easy for you? Right. Well, I don't know if it was easy, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I remember the five-mile swim in, in in our flight year, which was oh not God. exactly No, that would easy. not be fun. But, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I always kind of took it as a challenge. So coming from a fairly sports oriented family everything i took everything as a challenge i was involved in scouts and as a kid and so backpacking every um you know just about every weekend i could get up up into the mountains so i was fairly physically fit at the time right yeah so michael part of the premise of the fear me out podcast is helping people deal with their fear Mm -hmm. in a uh in a healthy way. Yeah. I can't imagine that you were living without fear, training to become a, a pilot under those circumstances. I'm wondering how you handled the in emotional intensity of the experience. Yeah. Um, it was one of those things where you certainly would get nervous about, you know, say going out for the first time we landed aboard carriers um, and feeling like totally unprepared to, to go and do it. But you really do just kind of push through the fear. And even though you're nervous and anxious about getting it done, you just, I just kind of push through it. And is there any emotional training at all that comes along in the military for people that are like, uh, uh, you know, landing on an aircraft carrier? As an yeah. example? I mean, they can't, I can't imagine they think it's an easy thing to do. Yeah. I, I actually looked at, um, when I did my master's thesis, I looked at personality types and what personality types do well in the military and which ones don't. Um, And of course they want people that are compliant, but I think they actually weed that out of you in the, in the very beginning because (laughs) the compliance, the compliance part. And it's interesting because in officer candidate school, you go through this training where they um, in the very first two or three days, you've got people screaming and yelling at you and pushing you to, to your limits in terms of, your physical um, limits, but they also do some psychological stuff that really does kind of, I hate to use the word tear down the ego, but adjust the ego maybe is a better way of putting it so that you become more compliant. And one of the things they would do to people is you would have room inspections and, you know, you would spend all this time getting your, your space prepared for the room inspection only to have them go in there and tear it up. (laughs) <laughs> tell, tell you that you failed. The whole idea is just to be compliant and go back in there. And there were a lot of people who would try and push back and scream and yell about, no, I did it perfectly. You're all wrong. And those are the people that really struggle oh, yeah. rather than just going in there and just doing the job, getting it done, go back in there, put your space back together, have them pass you and then move on. So that's kind of where they tend to push you in the very beginning is just to be compliant. And once you're compliant, they leave you alone. Oh, okay. Um, after officer candidate school and after my initial training, either as a surface warfare officer or in the, in aviation, it really was just a job. Hmm. Um, 
you just learn to do certain procedures at certain times and landing aboard the carrier is doing it by the numbers. If you continually do it by the numbers and adjust for the variables, um, you, you do fine. And as long as you're listening to like the LSO, the landing signals officer, and you're going to get aboard the, the ship. Well, so, you know, Michael, I was at your office once and you showed me a video of you landing on an aircraft carrier at nighttime in the dark. Yes. And uh, just watching it, I was wondering, uh, you know, where you get diapers big enough to do something like right. that. So, well, I'll tell you, that was probably the, <laughs> the one time that I really did physically feel scared. Oh, scared God. probably beyond, beyond anything because... It was you, scary watching it. Yeah. You really do end up um, kind of just setting yourself up by the numbers and then kind of being okay with allowing for some abrupt change to happen. So I do think it's about kind of pushing through that period of change. And I think as a psychologist, that's typically what we end up dealing with a lot right. is helping people get the resilience to change right. and make those transitions be okay with that transition. Did you ever get used to landing on an aircraft carrier at nighttime? No. Okay. Never. No, <laughs> so it's it was, not something you can get accustomed to. No, it's it's that you want to talk about an abrupt change. You're really yeah. just in inside the aircraft, flying the instruments, keeping you know the crosshairs of the needles on path and on glide slope, and listening to somebody in your ear, and all the way down till all of a sudden you just impact the deck because it's in the Navy. It's considered a controlled c crash. Oh my God. Because you keep the same attitude and the same airspeed all the way to touchdown. If you tried to flare like you do in civilian aviation or in the Air Force, you would miss the, the boat entirely because you're looking for a small patch. Right. It's essentially about 32 by 32 square feet wow. um, to put the plane down in. in so you to, just did it. You just did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you really did do a lot of intense concentration all the way to touchdown. If right. you tried to look out and see what was going on or try and, um, you know, do something other than focus, you were going to, you're going to miss. So. A lot of courage. That's yeah. all I can tell you. And again, it's, it's, it doesn't mean that I wasn't nervous. I, the first time I touched down at night, I, my legs were shake, literally shaking from I the bet. adrenaline rush that I got. Wow. Um, and one night, uh, they had me land aboard the carrier and supposedly the minimums were 200 feet and a half mile visibility. Um, it was not even anywhere close because I never, I never even saw the, what we call the meatball um, on touchdown because it was just so cloudy. They did literally wow. just let me fly all the way down to the deck. And that, that wow. one was scary. I bet. So so what eventually uh, happened that ended your career in the military, Michael? I know it's a very sad story. Yeah, as I was getting ready to go to the Gulf and do our rotation over in the, the Middle East during the Gulf War, um, well, actually during the uh, um, Iraqi freedom, or Iraqi, well, was, I don't, I forget the name of the, the exercise, but um, it, during, in Iraq, um, I had been flying for, almost oh five months straight getting ready to go over there i'd done my carrier qualifications um then i had gone to uh red flag with the air force and done all of the 
workups there doing joint exercises and then back to doing weapons um, qualifications at, at Fallon. And just from doing so many landings, because even at the airfield, we land the same way. Um, I ruptured a disc in my lower back that my um, flight surgeon decided to, to not do an x-ray. So I kept flying with what he kept feeling was just a pulled muscle. Oh, um, okay. And after um, taking about five minutes to get in and out of the cockpit, I just finally said, I, I can't fly anymore. And it turns out the disc had actually ruptured. Oh, dear. Um, only to go be medevac down to, to Balboa in San Diego from Nevada to have a flight surgeon, or not a flight surgeon, but a neurosurgeon who was not qualified to be doing the work he was doing operate on me twice. Oh, my God. Um, the first time incorrectly on the wrong disc and second time on the right disc. Oh, my God. We just... And- there's no, uh, there's nothing you can do in the military when you're having medical malpractice, right? No, nope. you're you're just a, uh, just a piece of equipment to the military. They operate on you to get you back to flying, and that was pretty much the end of my career because of his uh, inability to do it correctly. And so you never went back to flying a plane for the military after that? No, that was that was the end of it. I never recovered enough to be able to to requalify even the um after trying to get back into flight status i couldn't get the uh the military board of uh, flight examiners to requalify me so how did you deal with that situation in your life it sounds really traumatic it was devastating yeah i mean it was you know recovering was what i focused on initially right and then um and after having those two surgeries about a year apart. Um, it was kind of already devastating to know that I wasn't ever going to get back. And I just kind of focused on really, um, recovering and then getting out of the military because I knew that I need to go needed to find a different career. And I'm, am I misremembering that they diagnosed you with some type of mental illness to get you out of the military in some way or. Yeah. They, they, at one point they, they decided after the first surgery that I was being a hypochondriac is what they felt. And so they sent me to a psychologist and diagnosed me with, um, with bipolar disorder. Come on. No, there's not a bipolar bone in your body, Michael. <laughs> no. It's like, <laughs> talk about another type of malpractice. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. And they did that to absolve themselves of responsibility or well, what was it turns out. And actually, um, my wife, Jennifer and I, um, who is also my partner in the uh, business um, at Janice Counseling, she was looking it up and she found that <clears throat> in the records that this particular neurosurgeon who was, I think he's in Tennessee, still still, um, still has a medical license. Still malpracticing. Right, still <laughs> malpracticing. And he he actually had operated on somebody previous to me in the same way. And so he, he was being, I guess, under investigation at the, at the time for the same issue where he operated on the wrong, in the wrong area on somebody previously. Oh so, my God. Um, so, very yeah, so I think they were just trying to get me out of the military so that they didn't have to look bad. 
And it turned out when I went back to get my um, disability from the military that they kept denying it all the way up until the time I, my particular uh, lawyer had a friend who was a producer for 60 minutes. Oh, okay. And so we were about ready to go do a taping um, on this particular thing. And um, a Navy Admiral called me up and said, we have a flight for you and your family up to Bethesda. We're going to do all of your, um, your medical exams. And there were five different separate medical exams all in one day, which was incredible to get those things done. And, and they did it and ended up giving me a hundred percent disability. So, but only because you had influence. Yes. I, I think, <laughs> I think because I had learned about all of this in the, in the previous court martial, um, wow. that they really just wanted me to be satisfied and go away. Right. Um, so, so what happened from there in your life? I mean, now you're a practicing, uh, psychotherapist and you got a PhD in, right. you know, clinical psychology and how, how'd you get from the military to that? Well, that, that's kind of unusual. I, I did grow up with two parents. Uh, my stepfather and my mother were both psychologists. Oh, so okay. certainly had that in my family already. Um, I did want to go into psychiatry and I specifically wanted to go into psychiatry because I wanted to do psychoanalysis oh. um, or analytical psychology. And so it just turns out that at, after, in the 80s, there was a big blow up with psychoanalytic institutes and they had to let psychologists in. So I think this was a better way because I don't really care to be prescribing medications. Oh, okay. So I, after recovering and, um, you know, uh, going through therapy for a number of years, as you know, we, um, I ended up getting interested in going into actually getting my MFT license. And then when I did that, I thought I want to go on and, and do a little bit more training. And so I went and went back and did my PhD in psychoanalysis or, um, psychodynamic therapy. So Michael, um, is there anything that you can think about in your childhood that might've influenced the, your eventual career path to be of service to others and, you know, take care of the people that come to see you? Yeah, I think my, you know, after being sexually abused as a small child, I kind of found Boy Scouts as a refuge, a safe place to be since my parents were otherwise preoccupied with their own lives, that that was a good place for me to, to, to be and be safe. Um, that also gave me a sense of serving others. And I think that's probably the biggest influence of my life um, was doing that. Certainly going through abuse as a child, you get this idea that you're somehow damaged. And I think you yeah. try and, and make up for that. And one of the ways I made up for that as a kid was always doing something for somebody else. Um, if it wasn't helping other people out doing construction or helping other people out in Boy Scouts by doing service work. Um, that was the way I kind of tried to make up for, I think, what I thought was damage, which actually turned out to be an asset in my life. So tell me a bit about your mom and your dad, besides the fact that they were, or your stepdad, I guess, the, the, that they were mental health professionals themselves? Yeah, my stepdad um, taught, taught psychology at... Um, at Cal State Long Beach. Okay. For, I don't know, 
30 years. Previous to that, he taught at Berkeley. Um, and then my mother was an industrial psychologist. And so they did a lot of testing as well as teaching. None of, neither one of them were actually therapists. Oh, okay. Um, so I didn't really get a clinical sense of it. I certainly, my stepdad taught clinical psychology, um, even though I don't think he ever had a, a license as a psychologist. Okay. Just as a teacher. And what about your biological father? And my biological father, who was a big influence in my life in terms of going into the Navy, um, he worked for the Navy. He was a general foreman at the Naval Shipyard. Um, oh, okay. He was kind of absent in my life for a number of years because he was a functional alcoholic from what is essentially childhood all the way through till he was 60. Wow. Um, but I certainly admired him for what he did. He was a very capable man. Um, so he influenced me in terms of the Navy. He was in the Navy as well. And your relationship with, with your mom and your stepdad, were, were the relationships okay or were troublesome or how would you describe them? Um, I would say, I would say it's troublesome in the sense that they were absent. They were so more neglectful than anything else. Right. They were, they were busy with themselves. Um, my stepdad was 22 years older than my mother. Oh, okay. And so they were constantly always going on vacation on the weekends and we were left alone for quite a bit um, throughout my life. They certainly weren't interested in me in terms of the things that I did. They, my mom was very interested in my sister's sports and certainly interested in going to see my brother um, in terms of his sports. Um, they weren't interested in coming to see me play um, concerts when I played clarinet. And, oh, okay. Um, and neither did they really, were they interested in the marching band stuff as well, which I think that was a, a big part of um, my life in terms of giving me structure, music and, and marching band, and certainly allowed me to meet my wife, who, who was a cheerleader or a uh, right. pepster at the time. Right. So, so are, are they at all involved in your life at this point? Uh, my mother is not involved in my life. My mother actually has Alzheimer's. Oh, um, okay. And there was a, a split in when, you know, my mom continu continuously told me that uh, she needed to take care of the girls, that boys could take care of themselves. Um, my mother was also very interested in women's um, women's issues she was the executive director for the commission on the status of women for the state of california that's a oh. hard one to get out yeah um so she was always interested in in politics and and she wrote a lot of the legislation that the state of california passed um she certainly did a lot for for women and women's issues right and i'm certainly could be proud of her for that but she was very absent in her children's life so how did you deal with the, the neglect of sort of being left to your own devices? Um, again, I think it was, fan, you know, friends and, you know, a little bit of family. My sister certainly, you know, was around quite a bit until um, she met somebody and then went off to college. But um, I think it was more friends and, and scouts and music and other organizations that I got involved in. Did the abuse that you suffered and the neglect that you suffered eventually catch up with you psychologically, do you think? 
yeah, I think it, um, it eventually caught up with me when, when I lost my career. And oh, okay. that's the period of time in which I really didn't have much of a, um, oh, how can I say it? A, a focus or a occupation. I kind of felt like I was adrift. The only thing I really had in my life was, was my wife and, um, or my, at the time, my future wife. And because of that, I really felt kind of lost in terms of who I was as a person. Um, cause I didn't have any, any area to focus on, didn't have others to focus on. And I think that's what my trauma and the abuse did was kind of forced me to focus on others. If I was, which is probably what got me in trouble in the first place. <laughs> was, I didn't have that. And it turned out that the, the person that abused me, um, was a family friend who was around um, during my sister's baseball, softball games. So when I would have to go to the f- softball games, that's where I met this couple and he was the one that abused me. And he was also my, my um, custodian at the, at the elementary school that, that I went to. Boy, that's a handy place for a pedophile to work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, there was, I think the fallout with my mother was primarily over that issue and the fact that she didn't um, feel like she needed to do anything about it. She didn't want to. She knew about it? She knew about it. And um, she didn't do anything? She didn't do anything. She chose to to, to essentially call me a liar and say mm-hmm. that it really didn't happen the way I thought it happened. Um, it and certainly, without going into the the graphics of it, it certainly, it, it happened. Um It happened over and over because they would have these people over to our house to have parties on the weekends. And he would find you and take advantage of you. Yeah. And so. And your mom's a mental health professional and she should know better than anybody. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, man, how did you handle when you started to really look at this stuff, not feeling incredibly resentful toward her and really angry with her for abandoning you and allowing you to be abused on a regular basis? Yeah. No, it, it, we, we discussed it a, several times and there, we had our splits at times when I wouldn't talk to her because I felt like she was, um, not being present for it for me. Um, but, and we discussed it and she would always say, Oh, I'm sorry. But you know, as we know, as mental health professionals, when somebody says, I'm sorry, they're, what they're saying is I want to end the conversation. <laughs> And so that was her attempt at making amends without having to make amends. Right. Yeah. So, wow. but she still continued to be very absent in my life. And, and even as an adult, when I would go to her with, you know, issues or things I wanted to discuss, she was never available. So I just finally, you know, when she retired, she wanted us to, to then, engage with her all the time right? and take care of her. Yeah. And I just finally said, uh, I had enough because it was always, it was always very dramatic and very traumatic because my mother, despite her ability to do good work in her career, she wasn't very good at being a mother. Right. And because of that, it was really kind of all about her. And, and you, you had a, was it a little brother or older brother? I had an older brother. And, what, and, and something happened with him also, right? Yeah. I actually have four kids in the family. There was an older brother, an older sister, 
as well as a um, myself and then my younger sister. Okay. Both my older brother and my younger sister both died of alcoholism. Oh, um, okay. Both about the same age, about 58. Um, Do you think that they were abused also when they were children or you, you don't really know about that? I think there was a, there was probably some abuse. I think the, the neglect and the kind of absence of my mother really was the, the big part of it. Right. Um, my brother, you know, got into lots of trouble and got into drugs fairly early in life and as well as alcohol. Um, and so same with my younger sister. Um, my younger sister, my mom probably did the opposite. She enabled her in a lot of ways to continue to drink. Oh, and okay. I think the drinking came from my dad's drinking. Right. Um, didn't mean that my mom and stepdad didn't drink. They drank every weekend. Oh, okay. So there was a lot of alcohol in the, in the family. Right. So. so you're bringing up a really important point about trauma, which is you can be as traumatized by neglect as you can by overt abuse. Oh, yeah. And I think that's something really important just to mention in, in the context of our conversation, because mm -hmm. even though you were overtly abused, it sounds like the neglect was equally, if not more damaging than what actually happened to you. Yeah, because it didn't have any way of of resolving the trauma. So the trauma just exists and you end up with the hypervigilance and the kind of the paranoia and all sorts of things that go along with trauma itself. And then you certainly have the dissociate, dissociative parts of it. Um, I don't know if I ever really struggled from dissociation, but I could have easily have gone to what my brother and younger sister did, which is go to alcohol right. to manage the anxiety. Cause you, you know, with trauma, you get both depression and anxiety. Right. And um, I think I treated it by getting involved. They treated it by getting involved with alcohol. So they disappeared and you move forward into the care of others. Right. Yeah. So how do you then at this point, you're, you're without a career and you're kind of feeling lost. So what happens from that point forward in your life, Michael, that, that well, brought you I, toward making the decision to get educated in becoming a therapist? Well, by getting therapy. <laughs> okay. Fair yeah. enough. Years of therapy. I think, you know, the therapy certainly started when I was in the military. Okay. Um, and then it carried on um, after that, seeing a, a quite good professional that's sitting across from me. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. You're very kind. <laughs> and um, certainly exposing a lot of and going deeper, I think, is, is the key to finally realizing what was going on in, throughout my life. Um, I think getting out of the military, it seemed like the military was the focus. But, it you know, as going deeper in therapy... I finally realized that it was actually going back to being traumatized as a child. Right. Um, so I think, you know, resolving those, what they call the touchstone in EMDR, they call those, those touchstone memories right. are the ones that you really have to get back to in order to really heal from it. So after what, almost four years of therapy, mm -hmm. um, it was you that said, Hey, why don't you do this for a living? And I thought, well, you know, I thought about it before uh -huh. um, as an MD, certainly doing it as a, as a psychologist is certainly just as good. Well, you know, Michael, better. I have a big smile on my face because I remember actually very clearly after getting to know you thinking to myself, man, if this guy ever decides he wants to be a therapist, I'm going to do everything I can to help him because he's certainly got what it takes. 
Well, uh, you know, your intuitive qualities and your sensitivity and your intelligence and your manner are all um, spot on to be, to uh, obviously be as successful as you are at this point. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that, and that was the impetus to, to go on and, and do um, my marriage and family therapy uh, master's degree. So, and, and then you got the PhD. And then I went on after that and got my PhD in um, psychotherapy which is depth psychology, which in turn was Freudian and Jungian psychoanalysis. Okay. So Michael, tell us about your professional life now, if you don't mind, because again, I've not been very kind in some of the ways that I've described the therapy process. Uh, but when I decided I was going to do a series on people I admire and respect, you were mm -hmm. the first person that came into my mind because yeah. um, I've referred lots of people to you and anybody that has come to see you has always reported back to me that they're extremely happy with uh, uh, um, the service that you provide. And actually, I can tell you personally that um, uh, after having a number of surgeries and not being able to sleep afterwards because of the trauma, you and I, you know, worked together for a while and it was extremely helpful. Amazing enough, I can actually sleep sometimes now. So <laughs> I'm grateful to you also on a personal level. So tell me about you and the Janus Counseling Center. Oh, well, Janus Counseling Center is located here in, in Santa Barbara, California. And it's J-A-N-U-S. J-A-N-U-S, the God right. Janus. Okay. The God of portals and transitions. Okay. Um, and we, I started that with my current uh, wife, um, Jennifer Vogel. Who's going to be on the next podcast, by the way. Oh, <laughs> and she, uh, she and I have uh, worked for since 2016 to start this counseling center to do both right. um, uh, therapy as well as doing training. Um, we just recently started Janice Community Counseling Services, which is the nonprofit side to do training for trainees who are going through their either psychology or um, MFT or LCSW or LPCC uh, training. Okay. So we will be doing um, that as well. Um, so. But you specifically, what do, do you have a specialization or a few? Um, I know you work a lot with trauma. Yeah. And trauma is primarily what I do. I work with probably a predominant amount of people who have, have either trauma uh, through the military, first responders, firefighters, police officers. Um, I certainly work with um, even a few of the district attorneys here in town because the deal they deal primarily with trauma. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and so um, I've done quite a bit of work. My dissertation was in trauma. I did uh, my dissertation on complex trauma, complex PTSD, people who had trauma as children and then trauma again in the military. Um, and then I do a lot of work with um, EMDR, which is evidence-based therapy, cognitive behavioral therapies as well. And then I also do a lot of work, um, psychoanalytic work, where I do work with um, people who are just trying to, to grow in their life and, and individuate into, into who they really are. And what are the age range of people that you see? I think the youngest has been seven all the way up to the oldest is 86. Okay. So it's a very wide, yes, wide range, wide range. Yeah. Do, do you do couples counseling also, or just individual? I do couples counseling. Um, okay. For some reason I've been tasked to do a lot of that for first responders. Oh, I can imagine. Um, so 
I do, I do do couples counseling as well. Yeah. And how much does your intuition play into uh, the approach that you take in working with people, Michael? Oh, I think it, it's almost all of it. Um, it's really that intuitive part that really is, is key to trying to understand people's stories. That's primarily how I work is trying to look at people's stories and look at the metaphors that might be associated with their story and see how their story kind of tracks um, their life in terms of trauma. If it's trauma, it's always looking for people, trying to teach them how to get out of the trauma cycle so that they can get back to a life that is more resilient and certainly more you know, productive in their life. In terms of working with couples, I think I got a, a lot of education um, from you on that and working with the, the kind of chess game that people play in terms of who's you know trying to get more power in, in this, the struggle and trying to work with the person that I typically work with the person who has, you know, the least amount of power in the, in the couples trying to help them get back to a better balance, um, in the, in the couple. So, um, I don't know if you remember this, Michael, but when I was working with you doing EMDR to help me sleep casually, you just mentioned to me in passing, you know, I think your life is going to change and something really big is going to come into your life. I don't know if you remember saying that. Yeah, I do. And then within a relatively short period of time, I woke up and realized it was time to write a book and start a podcast. Yeah. And then I looked back and I thought, how did Michael know that? (laughs) How do you know that? I I think like you, I think things just pop into my head. I typically get these images Uh um, that just kind of pop into my head. I don't, I don't always understand them. Sometimes I do. Um, Sometimes they're related to what we're talking about and sometimes they're just, just a strange image of, you know, whether it's a fairy tale or a, a, uh, a, a Greek or Roman story um, that I've heard before, or even even sometimes it can be parts of the Bible that, that pop out in my head and I can see how this person's story is matched to that kind of metaphor. Interesting. And so it's, it's just, I don't really have much control over when they pop into my head. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you don't censor them because uh, it, it was quite a gift to me when I looked back and thought, wow, he was really on to something. <laughs> glad. Um, yeah. So uh, you, you just mentioned something that I consider to be really important, which is having a spiritual life mm-hmm. related to your professional life. Right. Do you believe there's a link between the two for you? Oh, completely. So yeah. can, do, are you comfortable describing how that works for you? Well, I yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting subject. I certainly grew up with two religions. I grew up with Catholicism and grew up with uh, Judaism. So, so both of them. Yeah. Both both uh, have a corner on the marketing guilt. Right. Yeah. Guilt and shame. I got <laughs> and them both. shame, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and so I had a lot of that in my life. Um, so I was exposed to those kinds of things. Um, but I also was really interested in, in certainly reading and reading, you know, philosophy and history and those kinds of things. So that that those kinds of backgrounds are in there. Um, but in terms of how I feel about my spirituality, I, I've been exposed to just about everything. Certainly when I went through um, my training, and we had a lot of training in depth psychology and Jungian psychology, he went around the world and looked at all sorts of different religions. So, And they all have a similar tie-in to each other. 
I also got interested in quantum physics. Oh, really? And how that works. That's interesting. And so the whole idea of that we exist in multiple realms or that we exist in multiple lives or, you know, certainly if you go into Catholicism or go into um, Christianity or even Judaism, there's the whole idea of in Catholicism and Christianity of heaven. In Judaism, it's more about we're living it now. So the whole idea that we're living those lives as we speak, I kind of use that idea of um, that we can get in touch with either people on the other side or we can get in touch with um, ourselves and maybe another life is if you look at quantum physics and the idea of that there are realms or other um, aspects of who we are living in other places. Um, and I, I'm a big believer that in terms of that energy never dies. I mean, we, the quantum physics or the physics idea that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Right. We have to exist beyond this. Right. So I kind of use that in my own psychology in terms of seeing how people live lives. This life is similar to another life, but doesn't mean we can't change the lives we live in terms of making um, ourselves better as we go through each iteration of our life. And that might be, in, for me, it was starting off as being molested as a child and then going on into the military, I feel like was a totally different side of myself and certainly a different life. Sure. And then going into this business is another part of who I am. So they're all parts of myself. And certainly in Jungian psychology, we have the belief that there is parts of ourselves when we have dreams there. It's really not about other people or about other things. It's parts of ourselves. So we can get in touch with those things as well. Um, certainly, I think trauma, going through the tr trauma cycle is that I finally got in touch with that stronger part of myself where I learned to say no to things right. as opposed to continually getting traumatized okay. or neglected or abused. So one of the premises that uh, Tim and I have have a really strong belief about is that your intuition is the voice of God inside of you. Mm -hmm. Now, some people object to the notion of using the word God, your higher power, your collective unconscious, whatever right. whatever term that you want to use. Do you believe that your intuition is is divinely connected? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I feel like um, I've had periods of time in my life where, where God has, I felt, has come to me in different ways okay. in order to help me in my decision-making and certainly in my intuitive part, I would say, yes, I think God exists within us as well as outside of us. So when you're working with your clients, do you feel that connection is there to help you uh, uh, kind of get whatever you need in order to be the best that you can be in the, in the context of whoever you're um, serving? Yeah. I, I think as long as I'm not distracted by other things in life and I can, be in the moment, which I think is key for a lot of people, right. then you can get in touch with that. But I think if you're distracted or busy doing other things, you're not going to, to be able to get in touch with it. But I do think most people can get in, find it and get in touch with it. They just have to, one, believe in it, and two, 
be open to it. Do you try to teach some of the people you see how to do it, how yeah. to have that relationship? I think if they're individuated enough, meaning they're mature enough in their, in their life cycles that, um, in, in, in their life that they can, they can get in touch with it. And sometimes I can teach it to people, um, or get that, get them to realize it. And most of that work is done through dream work right? because people seem to be more open to, to those ideas in dream work because well, that's interesting. I never thought about it from that perspective. So if somebody brings a dream to you, you can help them see that it's their unconscious mind trying to help them heal, I mm-hmm. guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah. So that's one of the pathways that you can use to help somebody feel more connected to themselves by um, encouraging them to take their dreams seriously. Yeah. I think there's a therapist in all of us that <laughs> we can get in touch with. Yes. Yeah. And then, and, and, and you can use the word God uh-huh. um, that you can get in touch with. So um, yeah, I, I know that in my training, uh, religion was looked at as a, a, a form of mental illness mm. <laughs> in the psychology world. Right. Um, but I, th- you know, have come to understand that having a spiritual life seems really essential to healing, especially trauma. Yes. Has that been your experience also? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I think if you don't have a sense of who you are in terms of the world and you don't have a sense of God in the world, then you're just going to miss a whole lot of beautiful things in your life. And the only thing you have to focus on is the experiences you have. Um, and then you end up in victimhood as opposed to seeing the beauty of the world. The My trauma, despite the fact that it was painful and hurtful, gave me a lot of a- attributes that I now can use. One of them was seeking spirituality. Um, the other one was, you know, being aware of what's going on around me, despite the fact that some people will feel trapped by that. To me, it's, I am so aware of what's going on around me that I use all of those little cues. Um, it could, could be a sound outside. It could be a, you know, something that I see moving by the window that I all of a sudden see a metaphor. Um, so it's one, it's, I use quite a bit of the hypervigilance, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Leftover in yeah, a healthy as way. A, as a way of healing others. Okay. So when you face someone, like if you met me in my 30s and you asked me what my religion was, I would have told you I was an antagonist, Mm -hmm. right? I was not agnostic or atheist. I was an antagonist because of the trauma that I suffered in the name of, you know, being forced to go to Hebrew school and all the stuff that I hated. So how do you then, because I have trouble sometimes with people that have been traumatized religiously Uh to help them see that God and religion are separate, that they're not the same. Right. How do, you, how do you help people in that kind of situation? Is there anything that you found that works to help someone accept maybe the notion that you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater? Right. I think I would probably ask them to, to tell me more about their antagonism. <laughs> that would be easy for me. Yeah. <laughs> and so, because I think it is a, an underlying story, and it might be one of those things of, you know, maybe religion just didn't come at the right time for you, as opposed to it whether religion should be there or shouldn't be there. Cause that to me feels right. too binary. Right. I think, um, Jungian psychology certainly teaches us that you can say the same thing to somebody over and over again, and just might not be the right time for them to hear it. Right. So keep saying it, just maybe uh, yeah, say it, it in different ways. Well, and I, I know that when I was in therapy for at least a decade with a, um, a man that I adored who became my mentor, he tried really hard to help me heal those wounds, but 
he kept doing it from a religious perspective because mm-hmm. he was Jewish and believed that right. that was my path. But that didn't work for me because, sadly, I sort of came of uh, uh, of age in the early '60s during a time that was very close to the end of you know World War II, and so most of the rabbis and teachers that I encountered in Hebrew school were really damaged, really unhappy, very miserable people. Yeah. Um, I just remember the guy that did my bar mitzvah, he was so old and so bitter. I just thought, you know, there's nothing sacred about any of this. It's all, it's right. all bitter, really unhappy people. I just want to go play baseball. That's where the fun is. Right. So, exactly. <laughs> well, it took a, a long time for me to get past all that. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of those things of, um, it, it, some people get caught up in trying to interpret the words as opposed to just hearing the words. Right. And maybe that's just what you needed was to be able to hear the words in your time right. and not in their time. Well, especially when you're stubborn like me, it takes, it takes an act of God to wake me up to God's okay. existence. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't happen in a religious context. Yeah. So I, I didn't become born again because it happened in a, right. <laughs> in a social context. Uh, context. Yeah. I think when God appears for people, sometimes they're slapped upside the head and yes, they know it. I was slapped upside and the head. And some people just get tapped on the shoulder. Right. So, well, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you notice that if you don't listen to the whisper, it becomes a normal tone of voice. Right. And if you don't listen to the normal tone of voice, it starts yelling. And after that, it's a slap on the head. Right. And then even still, a lot of us don't listen. Yeah. So. Exactly. So um, if somebody's looking for a therapist, how would you suggest that they go about doing that? Because there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that uh, we have been encouraging to get some help and to go deep. Mm -hmm. But if they don't live in Santa Barbara, I mean, what's your recipe for when somebody says, well, I got a friend who lives, you know, somewhere, how do you help them find somebody that is capable? Yeah, well, my my suggestion is always to, you know, call and talk to them. And I think you'll, you'll, find um somebody who will resonate with you and be open to that that feeling that you get from them um sometimes you can call me and and only get me for a couple of minutes um Mm -hmm. as opposed to a long period of time certainly the way i mean if you want to be practical about how to look for somebody Uh certainly looking online looking through psychology today and finding people who have written a bio or something that seems to resonate with you a lot of the people that come to see me, it it's because of my background that that um, it resonates either my training or my um, my experience because I certainly don't hide that I was in the military before, right? Um, and and it's also the things that I I believe in um, that I post in my either on my website or the things that I write about myself on my website. So. Try and use all of those good old technological uh, factors to try and look for the right person. Right. Um, look, if some people will um, even come to me via the internet, via telehealth. Really? So we do Zoom. Um, I certainly can only do it in the states I'm licensed in, but right. there are a lot of people who can do Zoom. I have people in Northern California. Um somebody in, in uh, Napa Valley, and I have somebody all the way down in San Diego. So um, I do telehealth with those and certainly can do good work. They seem to think it's, it's good work. Okay. Um, and then I certainly, you know, see people in, in-house that uh, 
people come to visit me and some people, you know, only come and see me for a time or two. I don't think you should be, you know, you stick with somebody just because you, you felt like you made a contract with them. If you don't like them, sure. Move on. Yeah. Um, and try and find somebody else, but find somebody who's interested in the career of being a therapist. There are a lot of people in this business who use psychology or, you know, psychotherapy, the occupation as a, as a part-time job. You mean like a hobby or something? Yeah. Because they, they have other things they want to do and this just gives them a few extra dollars. Those are the people you want to avoid. Right. Um, so look for people who are trying to make a career out of it. And are well-trained hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm assuming like my business, I would say 98% of the people that come to see me are satisfied customers that refer their friends and family. Mm-hmm. Does that work that way for you? Yes. Yeah. I think that's very true. So encouraging people to ask their friends. Right. Um, oh yeah. It's probably the best way to find somebody because I can't imagine somebody would uh, talk well about somebody that's not helped them. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's probably an excellent way of getting the, you know, finding out who's the best. And the other issue has to do with monetary uh, you know, value. There's lots of people who can't afford to see the two of us. Mm-hmm. So uh, b- before we wrap up, could you tell me a bit about, I'm going to ask Jennifer when I speak to her about the, the new project that you're doing with uh, trainees. Is it is it low cost? or Yes, uh, it's going to be sliding scale, okay. um, low cost. And we certainly take things into account whether, whether you can afford it or not. Um, so we will slide the scale to whatever you, you need in order to be able to see somebody. Cause that's, that's our goal as, as people who serve in this business is right. we want to see as many people as we can. And we want to bring good people, even if they're a trainee, they, they, our trainees have a lot of experience in life. Right. They're certainly in the middle of their training. So mm-hmm. they have a lot of expertise in the newest and the latest ways of doing therapy Plus, they also have us as supervisors. Right. Um, you're going to be a supervisor. I'm going to be a supervisor. So they get all that background. So they actually get two therapists instead of one. Right. Um, and we certainly monitor those individuals to make sure they're doing excellent training. We train them um, in the various modalities. I've, I've got training everywhere from psychoanalytic training to evidence-based training. Right. Um, so we're going to make sure that they get the same kind of training, whether they get it at school or not. So is there anything else that you would like to mention that I haven't asked you about? You've, you've been incredibly candid and, and certainly very forthright in describing your evolution as a person and, uh, and your professional life. What what have I left out that, that might occur to you in this moment? I think probably the thing that I thought about when I was coming over here was the idea of, um, not falling into victimhood. I think we, these days we look to try and find something that's wrong with us and then seek out people who will reinforce that. I think it's fine to have something, you know, unusual happen to you or something traumatic happen to you. Do you just want to work to get out, out of it or at least get it in the right spot in our psyche so that we can use those parts that are good for us um, and then discard the ones that are bad for us, but don't don't stay in victimhood because it's not an easy place to live. Right, and there are people like us out there. Just keep looking, keep seeking. Um, 
You know, Mike, you're bringing up such a good point of, again, Kim and I have talked endlessly about the idea that if you find a therapist and they pathologize you and they agree with you that there's something wrong with you, you're not in the right place. Right. Because um, all you need is somebody else to agree with you that you're the problem. Right. Instead yeah. of trying to help you understand that mostly it's what happened to you and what didn't happen for you that has created the misery that you're suffering and the loneliness and the lack of connection. So I'm really glad that you just said what you just said. It's really, really important. Yes. Yeah. So Michael, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Uh, again, you're one of my favorite people and favorite therapists in town. So well, it's, thank it, you. it's a double pleasure. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. I, I look forward to, to seeing you, uh, in the future. And, you know, Michael, I would love to ask you to come back onto the podcast when uh, I'm going to do a series on trauma in the future. And I would love for you to come and talk about EMDR because yeah. I think it's a very either uh, misunderstood or uh, people just don't understand what it is. And right. because I don't do it, I would love for you, if you're willing to come in and do a, a, a podcast on EMDR. I would love to. Very you good. Can get your ideas on hypnosis too. Very good. All right. Uh, look forward to that conversation in the okay. future. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Thank you.